0: The SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I'm joined once again by Kevin, Kevron Supreme with Techron Hume, our photo editor. How's it going, Kevin?
1: Pretty good, man. How you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Uh right before we started recording, you and I were talking about the camping trip. I just came back from camping is one thing that you can you can do during the pandemic that's relatively safe, I think. And and this this trip we went on was great because Very small group, and we all got um, COVID tests before we went. Several people got the results back negative before we went, and um, as we suspected, a few came in afterwards that were negative. So we feel pretty good about how safe we were this weekend. But a few days after coming back, I woke up at about 5 a.m., 5.30, and I saw a little itchy bump. I had a little itchy bump on my forearm, and I was like, oh, God, because I get poison oak so bad. Oh, man. Do you get poison oak?
1: Uh, I don't know if I've ever had it. I've had little things that have popped up when I've gone uh, hiking before. Like, I think I got maybe bit by a spider a couple times when I was living in Portland. Um, Oh, God, yeah, like I had like three different, like really red welts along my ankles after I went on a hike one time. But aside, and I think I had some, t- I've, I've had ticks try to get into me before, but I've never had poison. Oh, no,
0: ticks are nasty. Ever.
1: No, I know, but I, they didn't latch on, but they were crawling on me, and, and my girlfriend pulled them off at the time. So
0: I've had to pull a few ticks off myself. I pulled one off my dog one time that was, hmm. it, it must have been there for over a week. It was the size of a pinto bean.
1: Oh, my God. It looked like
0: one. Holy it was gross. God.
1: That's disgusting.
0: Anyway, yeah, I, I get Poison Oak really bad, and it made me think of the very first time that I discovered how bad I get Poison Oak after a vision quest to the secret <laughs> sidewalk in Niles Canyon.
1: Oh, my God. I remember that. You movie. remember that place? Yeah. The secret sidewalk? Yeah. There was
0: a fire in Niles Canyon uh, earlier this week. Was it really? Um, yeah, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Secret Sidewalk. Yes, we are. The Secret Sidewalk is uh, an old aqueduct. Uh, I believe it was part of the um, San Francisco Water District at one point, And it ran from the town of Sinol through Niles Canyon. It was rectangular. So imagine just a long rectangular block that carried water out to cities in the East Bay, like Fremont, where uh, I grew up, and, and Union City, where where Kevin grew up. And, uh, parts of it were completely submerged underground, but a lot of it just kind of skirted the hills in, in the Canyon. And because it was flat on top, you could walk on top of it. And because it was kind of hidden and, you know, in a place where kids (laughs) went to go smoke weed, uh, it was called the secret sidewalk. Um, it's on Atlas Obscura. You can look it up, (laughs) but anyway, anyway, uh, Yeah, Kevin and I went out there a couple of times Uh um, (laughs) in our youth, and I got one time, at least one time, I got poison oak so bad. Ever since then, I've been really careful, and when I start to see these bumps, I freak out, and I was worried that I was going to get it, but... um, I have a little bit of like prescription strength cream. Uh, I think yeah. it's got some kind of steroid in it from another time. Uh, and I hit it with that as soon as I saw it. And I don't know if I just didn't get it that bad or if the cream helped or a little bit of column A, a little bit of column It felt like Barry Bonds, you know, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be so strong.
1: Trying to oh, out. yeah. Oh.
0: <laughs> the clear, baby. Well, yeah the secret sidewalk what do you remember of that place
1: um i recall we went out there maybe three or so times um it's definitely a, a fun little kind of you know illegal hike <laughs> what i really remember was the the old adobe brick factory that was out there uh on our way to right. the sidewalk like we, that was cool We were walking out there exploring, and then you just come to this, like, leveled uh, factory that just thousands of bricks scattered all over the place with, like, 1905 and Niles written on them and things like that, you know?
0: The remnants of smokestacks, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was, like, two or three. I don't know if those are still there, um, but they definitely were. And then I remember uh, you and a couple of our friends talked me into climbing, uh, like, a 50-foot water tower with my uh yes. pretty decent fear of heights. Uh it was pretty awesome to be up there. Uh but I was very uh happy to get down and didn't want to ever do it again, so I didn't.
0: But we went back again. We did. And we tried again to get you to climb it. Yeah. This was April 20th. <laughs> <laughs> like 2000 and what, 2 or
1: 2? <laughs> something like that.
0: And so you, if I'm recalling correctly, you refused the second time. I did. You stayed at the bottom. And it turns out you made the right call because we were up there again, doing our teenage 420 thing. And then the helicopter came. (laughs) (laughs) It was a, it it must've been like private security or something. I mean, I don't know.
1: And then there were two black unmarked SUVs. Oh
0: my God. It was, I, the way I remember it. And you know, I don't know my memory is a little lazy, but I remember like, yeah, it like hovered above us for a moment. Yeah. And it was terrifying. Like, I don't know what they were thinking. Like, I guess they wanted to scare us off and the, and it worked, but I climbed down that ladder so fast, like multiple people on the ladder at once, yeah, not safe. Not safe.
1: Yeah. And I remember we like, we were trying, I mean, there's only like one way out. It's like a, you know, a fire road or something. Yeah. And so we were like, Trying to find a way to get back or get out. And we heard the cars coming again. So we like had to duck into the bushes somewhere, like and just yeah. you know, quiet and hide. And then I remember we hiked up like a really steep hillside to get to another portion of the sidewalk that was higher up. And then we just sat up there for a couple hours. Maybe. That might have
0: been the time where I got Poison Oak. Well, I don't know what's left of the secret sidewalk. Um, it is on Atlas Obscura. You can read about it there.
1: I looked into it maybe a couple of years ago just because I was like, oh, yeah, is that still a thing? And I think they've definitely, the residents around there have definitely beefed up security with, like, cameras and things to keep people out. Ugh. Yeah. Kind of a shame, but I get it.
0: So uh, speaking of youthful shenanigans in the great outdoors, this week on the podcast, we talk with SF Weekly intern Hannah Holzer about her story on Golden Gate Park's 150th birthday. And we'll talk with Richard Von Busack about his story on the resurgence of drive-ins, which, by the way, uh, Kevin, there is a float in coming to San Francisco. A very well-read story on the website. Uh, Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you heard about this?
1: (laughs) I did see it. It sounds really uh ambitious and uh kind of exciting.
0: Yeah, so it's going I think it's going to be in in the bay, probably in some sheltered alcove of the bay. They haven't announced the location yet, but yeah, you're going to be on these party boats, I think. The maximum size of the party is 8 and you'll be able to be out um floating around with with the people that you trust watching some film the films haven't been announced either you could read about it on our website though uh, sfweekly.com under the film tab anyway um this episode is gonna be about the great outdoors and and trying to have fun um in in a in a weird surreal covid summer anyway stay with us we'll be right back to talk about drive-ins in a century and a half of golden gate park Richard Von Busack, a longtime film critic and SF Weekly contributor. He's joined us to talk about his latest piece, At the Drive-In: A Remembrance, which explores the recent resurgence in drive-in popularity during the pandemic, and gives us a glimpse into the history of the institution, as well as Richard's own personal history with drive-in theaters. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks, Nick. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about your story?
2: Sure. Um, it's, I've been writing about drive-ins for quite some time and uh it's it's very bemusing because i was certain that by the year 2020 they'd be they'd absolutely be extinct there'd be you know the land use the land would be too valuable and uh there'd be all these other factors that would prohibit people from going to drive-ins but in fact right now they're the only game in town they're the only theaters that are open in the entire country right now uh, and so i was glad to go i'm glad to find out that people are actually trying to rebuild the experience you know try it in different places and there's there's areas in the country where they still go strong, uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, which is like kind of a vacation land for New York. In our Bay Area, we've there's like there's like about six um, in the whole state, I think at this well in, in the northern part of the state at this point. Um, they're starting to rebuild them. They're starting to build boutique drive-ins in the Austin area, um, in, in Nebraska, and they're about to. They've already broken ground in what's supposed to be the world's largest drive-in theater in this uh, place called Eustis, Florida, outside of Orlando. So um, one thing that I thought was
0: interesting in your story uh, was you mentioned uh, a dedicated drive-in critic uh, who
2: goes by Joe Bob Briggs. Can you tell us about him? He's a personality on television. He used to do like late-night TV shows where he'd show uh, films by uh, Master of Gore, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Uh, like Two Thousand Maniacs and uh, Blood Feast, and also the other kind of stuff that he was seeing. Basically, what happened to him? I feel like the guy at the end of, of Psycho explaining the explaining <laughs> what just happened. But he, it was kind of a, a split in this this one person. He was a uh, the normal film critic um, at the uh, the Dallas I think the Dallas Morning News Dallas paper, and he also liked in addition to. You know, see, seeing the prestige fair, the French movies and stuff that he was writing about in Dallas. Uh, and it, and it, he also was going to drive-ins by night. And so he just decided to create this persona, this good old boy called Joe Bob Briggs, that would just like describe what was going on in these drive-in theaters. Especially, you know, psychotronic type stuff, fight and fright films, you know, uh, revenge thrillers, things like that. And so uh, he had a column and it was, it was uh, syndicated in the, in the San Francisco Chronicle people hated him too sometimes i mean there was he had fans but there's people that just hated his cavalier attitude towards sex and violence on the screen but he's still around and uh you know he's there he is i got to interview him i was really happy about that because he always used to end his column you know with uh with obituaries for the drive-ins that closed they were all starting to go out in the in 1980s and so uh he, he'd like write like you know they, they just closed the Sentinel Sixplex. you know be vigilant america he, he, he didn't like that <laughs> He was right. Um, Yeah, he was vindicated. Yeah. There are
0: many interesting tidbits. uh, There are many interesting bits of trivia in this piece, like like Joe Bob Briggs. Um, Do you have any uh, particular stories you'd like to
2: call out that were that you think are uh, of note? Sure, sure. I mean, well, the the guy that actually the the guy that patented him uh, was a guy named Hollingshead in uh, Camden, New Jersey, hometown of Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman, rather make make of that what you will. And uh, he invented the configuration uh, of the drive in that kind of fan shape so that you have the most cars getting, you know, kind of focusing on the one screen. Uh, I, heard, I read somewhere that he did this because his mom was always uncomfortable in theater seats. And so he was trying to figure out a way she could, wait, she could watch movies, too. But there was a time uh, when the theaters were patented with the whole design of it and you had to pay royalties for it. And 1938 uh, some theater owners like took this guy to court and they got it overturned they said elements of his patents that included like uh, these berms these like little you know little rampways that you have, you have, you drive into a drive-in and like drive up so that your you know your wheels are up and you get a better view they' they were going this is like a bump in the ground you cannot patent a bump mm-hmm. in the ground and so <laughs> that was it so the next big thing that happened for the for the, the rise of the drive-ins was i'll try not to get too involved but in 48 when they had the famous consent decree because previously the movie studios were booking their own product into their own theaters that they owned and the supreme court broke that up as a monopoly so now the drive-ins didn't have to show inferior you know crappy fare they could show uh, the same the same movies that any other theater got and that Along with the uh, rise of the suburbs, it contributed to this gigantic boom. And at the top of it, nobody really knows what the number is. It's like somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 drive-ins all over the country. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it also had the the added uh, appeal of being like something you could do right after work. You didn't have to get, you know, gussied up. You didn't have to go home and get dressed like you would if you were going to a downtown movie theater with ushers in uniforms and stuff. You could just slop into the car you know, the wife's in the house coat. You're in your jump seat from work. The kids are in their pajamas in the back. It's it's great. So that's 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 the, contributed to the rise of it. Now, when the X-rated drive-ins came in, that was kind of more like the fall. And uh, there was actually one here in San Jose, that, in this area, that um, they sent a very square reporter from the Mercury to ask him, like, well, what's the difference between, uh, between a, an R-rated film and an X-rated film? And the guy said, well, you'll have to buy a ticket to find out. <laughs> There's always these legends that, you know, here you have these gigantic couplings of these huge drive-in screens and people are like driving down the street, minding their own business. They get a load of that and they go, ah, you know, and drive, you know, drive off the road. But no, that's that's not true. There was, you know, there's large enough fences that you had to be kind of tricky to be able to get a look at what was going on without actually buying a ticket. Up in Sonoma County, uh, well, on the border of Sonoma County, there was a place called the Sonoma Marin Drive-In that was right on the county line. And the story I heard was that the rejection booth was on one side of the county line and the screens on the other one, so the local sheriffs just, you know, they didn't know who's, whose jurisdiction it was. So it, just, it was it was a wild, you know, a wild era. These days, you know, I mean, people my age like to talk about the makeouts, you know, seeing sessions that were going on in the cars and stuff like that. And uh, that that's there's still something to that you know but really it's always been a big family entertainment thing you know swing sets under the under the screen you know people used to bring barbecues sometimes they you know it's very very much of a family scene family entertainment and rather than the really rococo bizarre stuff that that uh drive-ins are notorious for they were showing pretty much the same thing as everybody else
0: right uh so um you mentioned at the top of this story that you uh, went to see a dry, uh, film at a drive-in recently. Um, uh, can you tell us about
2: that experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was uh, it was family night. I wanted to save a buck, so I went on family night. And uh, I thought they were going to be showing John Wick, but the uh, the website lied to me, and it turned out to be Zootopia, which I'd already seen twice, actually. But the funny thing is is, you know, in addition to being like this strange, solitary man, you know, with all these little families running around, uh, the other strange thing about the experience was how much of a present tense thing it was. It wasn't a nostalgia trip at all. I mean, it was really, people are going there. They're not they're, These kids are too young to have gone to drive-ins during the glory days of them. You know, they're just, they're, they're there to go watch a Disney movie. One that they probably have on their, you know, they probably have like on Disney plus at home and stuff. I mean, the, the weather was wonderful. It was like outside of the Bay area, the Solano drive-in. It was a nice warm night, which is so rare in our neck of the woods. And, um, visuals not perfect you know especially when you do interiors I wish if I actually got to see John Wick I don't know imagine you know it's supposed to be a dark and gritty story of a guy avenging his his dog and stuff <laughs> I'm yeah. the last person in the world to have not seen the John Wick trilogy but I imagine there's a lot of interiors and stuff and I think it would be kind of hard to puzzle out light pollution's a problem
0: okay um so uh would you recommend as a, as a film critic of um three plus decades um to cinephiles who are missing the experience of going to the theater would you recommend a film going to check out a film at the drive-in
2: i think it's it's something you want to see it's uh especially if you've got kids that haven't seen it it's uh, what's shown around here on the whole are family movies i noticed that if i was down here at the capitol 16 I could have seen, like, uh, The Purge and stuff like that, which I, I would have loved to have seen. I think it's just basically, yeah, it's, it's a marvelous experience to get out in the air, and it's amusing that these are the last ones left. These are the last theaters that are open right now. And I just wish that, uh... oh, you know, the other point I wanted to make is that apparently you could four-wall, uh, i.e. rent these, these screens. Mm. You can get, like, uh, people together and maybe, like, get a screening of something you like that, that'd be something to see, too. It's, it's just such a marvelous experience, really. You know, it's, it's just a real rite of summer, and it's, it really cheers me up that, that not only are there people doing this stuff, down south in Los Angeles, there some, the American Cinematheque is running screens, uh, Tribeca Film Festival, they're doing not only just pop-ups in giant parking lots with inflatable screens and portable equipment, but they're actually, you know, they're starting to program them a little bit. So uh, I'd like to see that done up here. I really hope that will be.
0: Well, it's a great story. You can read it on our website, sfweekly.com. It's called At the Drive-In of Remembrance, and you can find it under the Film tab. Um, thanks again for joining us, Richard.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: This week, in between interviews, you've been listening to new music from And You Will Know Us by The Trail of Dead. The Austin Band is celebrating 25 years of making music and are marking their 10th album, X, The Godless Void and Other Stories, with a virtual tour to benefit the small clubs and record stores they've come to love after a quarter century on the road. You can catch their next live stream shows on Friday, August 7th and Friday, August 14th at 6pm at trailofdead.com slash Tickets start at just five bucks and proceeds will go, in part, to the bottom of the hill. Read the entire story by SF Weekly contributor Will Reisman on our website, sfweekly.com, under the music tab. We'll be right back. We're back with Hannah Holzer, SF Weekly intern and author of this week's story on Golden Gate Park, which celebrates its 150th birthday this year. It's an excellent read full of rich historical details and fascinating personal anecdotes, and it's all told through the eyes of San Franciscans who shared their fondest memories of our city's communal backyard. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah.
3: Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, can you start by just giving us an outline of your story?
3: Yes, of course. So I I myself am not a San Francisco native, but um I'm from Sacramento area, so I do have memories of doing day trips to Golden Gate Park. Um but those really looked like driving into the city, parking and spending the day at the de Young or the Academy of Sciences and then turning around and driving back. Um there wasn't a lot of exploration of the park. And so I thought I had a good sense of Golden Gate Park, uh, but then I met people who lived around the Richmond district, and I talked with them about the park and realized that I I didn't really have a good sense of it at all. So I was interested in writing a piece to celebrate the park's 150th anniversary, um, and I really sort of wanted to get to the bottom, if you will, of what um, an authentic relationship Um, of the park sort of has looked like. So a few weeks back, I visited the park with my sister in preparation for interviews that I did for the story. And for the first time, I saw the bison paddock and the windmills and the lily ponds and just sort of wandered. And I felt as if I got a sense of what it's like to just sort of use the park as a 1,017 acre backyard. And that was really the sentiment that was expressed in the interviews that I did with San Francisco natives and longtime residents who consider the park to just be a giant backyard and they've spent their childhoods in the park and so they have all sorts of memories. Um, And I really loved getting to talk to them about how the park has really been um, a pivotal place in their life from spending their childhoods at Children's Park to then getting older, going to the Harley Strictly Bluegrass Festival or um, exploring some of the hidden gems of the park. Um, It was really interesting to hear all the different ways the park has been used.
0: Yeah, and uh, it is 150 years old this year. And anything that's been around that long is sure to have a history worth telling. Can you catch us up on the history of Golden Gate Park? How did it come to be what it is today?
3: Yeah, so San Francisco city officials chose the park's current location, um, which is in the western part of the city, um, and they were really adamant about building a park there, um, although other people had some doubts and concerns about that choice of location because in the 1860s, where Golden Gate Park now stands were uh, rolling sand dunes called outside lands, and so city officials wanted um, Frederick L. Olmsted, who was the designer for New York Central Park, to be the designer of Golden Gate Park, but he really disagreed. He didn't think that a park could be built out of uh, sand dunes, essentially. Um, and he sort of counter-proposed the idea of building Golden Gate Park in the eastern half of the city under Sutro Tower, but City officials essentially ignored him, and instead they chose uh, William Hammond Hall, who was at that time a 24-year-old, to design the park instead. And William Hammond Hall was described by uh, historians or people who um, have no who are familiar with his work as this sort of genius, sort of person, a sort of Renaissance man. He wasn't college educated. Um, but he was really a brilliant kind of person, and he reached out to Frederick L. Olmsted and learned from him and then designed this really successful park by using natural resources, um, by pumping water throughout the park, and then turning uh, sand dunes into this wonderful park that we have today.
0: This was a really great piece uh, that was filled with so many great stories about what Golden Gate Park has meant to San Franciscans over the years. Uh, I was wondering, do you have any favorite stories from among the folks you talked to?
3: Yeah, so I really did have such a fun time writing this piece. I think it was a much-needed break from some more heavier news pieces. Um, But I really enjoyed speaking with George Four. He was, at one point, a third-generation Golden Gate Park gardener. His grandfather, Max, uh, emigrated from Germany to San Francisco, and originally he was a nurse in San Francisco, but he befriended John McLaren, who was the longtime superintendent of Golden Gate Park. And the two men had a shared interest in horticulture, and John McLaren invited um, this man, Max, to work in his park as a gardener. And he did, and uh, George describes his grandfather as someone who is very creative. He is responsible for the Rose Garden and the Rhododendron Dell, and then uh, Max's son, um, Frank. He also worked as a gardener, but he worked in the park for over 50 years, and he went on to become John McLaren's successor as park superintendent. Um, He also laid out different projects throughout the city, Um, so he landscaped the Palace of Fine Arts and uh, McLaren Park, and he received awards for beautifying the state and the country. And then in the park um, itself, he befriended the Hagawara family, who um, oversaw the Japanese tea garden for a long time. And when that family was interned, um, Frank worked really hard to try to, um, maintain all of the different elements of the park. Um, And then Frank's son, George, then did for a short while become the third generation of four men who worked in the garden, um, who worked in the park, excuse me, as a gardener. Um, And he is still a gardener today. And so when we spoke, he said that his children joke around that he was born with sap in his veins, which I think seems pretty apt.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, sounds like it. What are some of the things you think that even those familiar with the park might find surprising uh in your story
3: mm. um I think one thing that was expressed from especially San Francisco natives is the park has come has become to them um just a, a sort of a homey place i mean they some people who I interviewed have visited the park um an estimated hundreds, if not thousands of times. So I think for people like me who come to the park as, um, as more of sort of like a day trip or um, have a specific place or building in mind that we want to visit, I think it's different. It's a different experience from people who who visit the park so frequently, almost on a daily basis.
0: Okay. And uh, last question before I let you go. Um, You are a recent graduate congratulations, Um, planning on becoming a professional journalist, and uh, what a time to be entering the workforce. Uh, How are you feeling these days?
3: You know, for some reason, I'm feeling hopeful, and I don't really know why. I don't have a lot of reason to be hopeful, but um, I have just met so many wonderful people, and I I think I, I consider myself very fortunate and very lucky to be healthy, be happy, have a home, have a great set of friends and family and um, no matter what I think um, that there are amazing opportunities coming my way regardless of how they come or what they look like so um, I'm I'm hopeful for the future
0: well thanks so much for sharing your story with us Hannah and um, it's a great read like I said before you can read it on our website sfweekly.com thanks for joining us
3: thanks Nick